On July 4th, you guys are all welcome here. We would like everyone to bring a dessert and a side that's coming from Creekside. Uh, and if there's one thing I've learned over the years is that uh, potlucks are a spiritual gift for a lot of you, a lot of you guys. So um, we look forward to potlucks all the time. So on July 4th, bring a dessert and a side. Do not bring any uh, fireworks that shoot off into the air. Uh, we're trying to uh, minimize our liability. I know there might be some disappointed folks out there. So shoot those off before you come. Uh, you can bring sparklers, that's fine. So, but it, really, it should be a great time to invite friends, neighbors. Um, they can c really come anytime if they want to come right when the fireworks are starting. We're going to have popcorn and water here and just a great view of the Urbandale fireworks. So, so that's something we're excited for. Uh, another announcement is that Bob and Debbie Short uh, have a, a wedding come up coming up soon. Caitlin and Ben are, are right here in the third row. Uh, so that is coming up very quickly, and they have an RSVP list. They want to make sure it's accurate. So please take a look at that. I think it's on the welcome table. Uh, make sure your name is on there, and uh, they have you marked as coming if you're coming. And if it's not, uh, add your name to the list so that they know how many to expect. So that'll be exciting and coming up very quickly. Congratulations to, to you guys, and we look forward to that day. So with that, I guess... Uh, a quick reminder that if you're a newcomer today, we'd love to get to know you better. And uh, we have these guest slips underneath the chairs, so if you would grab it, fill it out, and then at the end of the service, we'll be passing the offering, and you can drop it in there. So uh, with that, we are excited to be starting a new series in the Psalms today. And uh, Steve, if you want to go ahead and come on up. I'm excited about this uh, new series that we're launching into uh, today in the Psalms. I invite you to Pray with me if you would. Father, as we come this morning and we just got done singing, Jesus, you are my king. And as we open your word, we come to see that you are the king. And I pray that in my life and that each one here, with sincerity, we would say, you are my king. And if you are not our king this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that before we leave here, we would bow the knee, bow our knees before you and acknowledge you for who you are. Open our eyes as the psalmist prayed, Father, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is kind of an aside, but we're singing this song and we say, Lord, I honor you in all I do. And I wonder, I, every time I hear the words of that song, I ask myself, can I really say that? I can't. Uh, maybe you can, and that's good. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I can't, because I know that in everything I do, I don't honor my king. So I say, in all I do, I want to honor you. That's my heart, is that I want to honor him in all I do. But I know that I don't. I have a friend, a good friend. He was the best man in our wedding. He spent two years in South Africa, and upon his return... He, was, he found himself driving the wrong way on the interstate. 
because in South Africa they drive on the, well, for us it's the wrong side of the road, so when he got here he was driving on the wrong side of the road. He was headed in, uh, into the traffic on, in two lanes on the interstate, and he didn't realize it until after several minutes of meeting oncoming traffic and realizing nobody was going in the same direction he was going on the interstate, he was going the wrong direction. And so the reality of it hit his brain, but then he got off the wrong way on the on-ramp so that he could cross over and get back going in the right direction. My buddy uh, Jay was going the wrong way. And fortunately for him, the reality of going the wrong way was realized without and remedied without any real adverse problems. Okay? So there was no problem. So the reality of it hit him. <laughs> he reversed course, and there was no adverse result from it. And the remedy was rather easy. This morning we launch into our summer series on the Psalms, and they're selected Psalms. We're not going through every Psalm, but they're selected Psalms. And we begin with Psalm 2. And particularly in this Psalm, the reality and the results and the remedy for going the wrong way, Jay's mistake was innocent defiance or disobedience to the law. But the problem with humanity is that we have... Not innocent, but intentional defiance towards the laws of God. And our intentional defiance has a reality to it, there is a result of it, and there is a remedy for it that comes to light all in conjunction with the reality of Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, who reigns on the throne of God. And that's Psalm 2. It brings it out for us. In Psalms 1 and 2, they're written by David. They're, <clears throat> excuse me, they are the first section in Psalms. If you look at the 150 Psalms, it's divided into five different sections. Verse, chapters 1 through 41 is the first book of Psalms, and then 42 through 72, 73 uh, through 89, 90 through 106, 107 through 150. There are five books. The first book is introduced, and the entire psalm is, Psalter is introduced in chapters 1 and 2. And in chapters 1 and 2, this is written by David. It's clearly, Psalm 2 is clearly a messianic psalm. And what do I mean by that? When you hear that refer, it means that it's directly speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's directly messianic. Many of the other ones are, I'm going to use a fancy word, tangentially related. They are, they are, referring to Jesus, but this one in particular is all about Jesus, okay? And in this psalm, it comes after Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we have the two different ways and the two different consequences of those ways, which are then amplified in Psalm 2. Now, blessed is the man who walks not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the way of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he goes on, how blessed. Now, in Psalm 2, Psalm 1 begins with how blessed. Psalm 2 ends with how blessed. So blessed is the, the righteous, and then cursed is the wicked. This is 
Psalm 1, verses 3 and following, and then Psalm 2, verse 6. And so we have this amplification, and it sets the foundation for the entire Psalter. For all that happens in the Psalms is related to what is laid out for us in the first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2. Because the psalmist gives us this idea that we have hope for the righteous. There is help for the repentant. And there is hardship for the rebellious. But where Psalm 2 takes Psalm 1 and the contrast to the next level is in direct relationship to the person of Jesus. Because in Psalm 2, we find the enablement for right living. You say, well, I know Psalm 1 is all about the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Yes, but why would you delight in the law of the Lord if you didn't know the Lord of the law? It's only as we know the Lord of the law that we delight in the law of the Lord. And so Psalm 2, which is about the King, Jesus, provides us the enablement for living righteously. It provides us the escape for living incorrectly. And so we come to Psalm 2. And there are four voices in Psalm 2. We're going to hear each voice speaking clearly and loudly to us. And each one testifies to the reality, the result, and then the remedy for going the wrong way. All of it in relationship to the reigning king, Jesus. I have my Bible open to Psalm 2. I invite you to turn there as well. I'm going to read the entire psalm which is only 12 verses, and then we'll begin to tease out what each of the voices that are speaking to us have to say to us in relationship to the reality, the result, and the remedy of going the wrong way. Psalm 2, beginning with verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, or as the ESV says, kiss the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The first voice that we hear is the rebellion of the nations. You see it there in verses 1 through 3, and I just read the text. And there are four considerations that expose the reality of man's rebellious condition. Who are the subjects of this rebellion? Who is rebelling? Notice the text says for us that it refers to the nations, first of all. The nations are in an uproar or a rage, as the ESV says. The peoples devise, the kings of the earth, and the rulers 
take counsel. So who's he talking about? There are the regulars and there are the rulers. There are the masses and the masters. There are the people and the princes. Everybody is involved in this rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. It's an indictment of all humanity. WHO Radio had this thing on a while back where, you know, the, given $1,000 every hour or something like that, you know, for 16 hours or 15 hours. And so they would say, uh, cash, text, that's the key word, text cash, and then they'd give you the number. Well, who was that for? Well, you had to hear it, first of all. You had to hear the word. Then you actually had to text it in. And then you were just one among many who had the opportunity to win the money. David, the psalmist, says that all of humanity, the nature of human persons is to rebel, to be defiant against the king, against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the, these are the subjects of who it is. David's condemnation is universal. Now, further evidence that this is not just some scholars would say, well, this is just confined to some Middle Eastern king at that point in time. Well, Acts chapter 2 would beg to differ with us because in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, which I'm not going to go there. We're going to go to verse uh, chapter 4 in a minute. But Acts chapter 2, the, there are, there's an encouragement. Psalm 2 is, is recited here. And actually, I'm not sure. I think it should be Acts 4. Yes, it's Acts 4. I'm sorry, I said Acts 2. It's Acts 4. In Acts chapter 4, the, the believers are giving this thanksgiving prayer. And they're excited to pray to God because he has delivered Peter and John from the, the Sanhedrin have released him. And they say, they quote Psalm 2 in, in this. They're quoting it. And they're saying, if you look at, at, at Acts chapter 4, verse 27, for truly in this city... Now, how long after David wrote Psalm 2 did Luke, inspired by the Spirit, write this? Well, you know, a thousand years, something like that, you know, okay? So, truly in this city, Jerusalem, not only in David's time, but in this city, Jerusalem, were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Now, get this, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So who's indicted for rebelling against the Lord and the Lord's anointed? Not just the rulers, not just the rulers in David's time, but the rulers in Luke's time. And not just the rulers, but it is also the people, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. It's everybody. They're rebelling against it. It's not just confined. It's some limited thing. And then we see the statement of our rebellion in verse 1. Why are the nations... In an uproar, as ESV says, why did they rage? And verse 2, and they take their, uh, and devise a vain thing. In verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. I mean, folks, this is bold-faced defiance. I mean, they're standing up against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. They're raging. They're saying, this is in your face. This is our six-month-old child that looks around at their father, me, and after I have told them no, 
and they smile, and they do exactly what I forbade. It's bold-faced defiance against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. Now, the word anointed, some of your translations say Messiah, which would be an accurate translation for that. The Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach, is translated in the Greek Christos or Christ. This is clearly a reference to Jesus. There's no other way you can take it. The reference to Jesus. Rebellion against God's Son is rebellion against the Father. And vice versa. It's rebellion. The hostility of men towards God and His Son has not diminished over the ages. Some of you will be familiar with the name Richard Wombrand. He is the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. In 1945, the communists were raging against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, the communists in Romania. And uh, he was told that he had to be quiet. Well, he didn't. If you go to the Voice of Martyrs webpage, you can read testimonials that in today, from India to North Korea, from Indonesia to Africa, the nations are raging against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. They're standing up against God, against God's people, against the person and the work of Jesus. And there is persecution of those who claim and name the name of Jesus. It's not some ethereal thing, not some out-of-touch thing. It's something that's here, too. I remember listening to Joe Stoll, who at the time was the president of Moody Bible Institute. Now I think he's the president of Cornerstone in Grand Rapids or something like that, but he was sharing that he was invited to the mayor's prayer breakfast in Chicago. And he and some of the staff at Moody were there, and they were told explicitly before the meeting, nobody is to use the name of Jesus. And so Joel Stoll was sitting at a table, and behind him was one of the staff members who, you know, so he Joe wasn't looking at him. This was one of his employees, right? And so Joe Stoll tells the story that during the prayer meeting, the prayer time, his employee stood up and began to pray in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can gather in the name of the precious King of the universe, Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray. And he went on and on and on. And Joe Stoll is like inside going, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were forbade, or forbidden, I guess forbidden, to, to speak in the name of Jesus. In your schools, you're told you can't pray. I'm thinking, that's stupid. Who said you can't pray? I can pray with my eyes open. I can pray with my eyes closed. I can pray anytime I want. You can't keep me from praying. You can pray. Now, some of you go to Christian school. Some of you are in your home school. You're not told you can't pray. Uh, Christian school, you're probably told you can't pray, but in the public school, you're told you can't pray. That's gobbledygook. That's garbage. You can pray anytime you want, and if you're told you can't pray, then you have evidence that the, the Lord and the Lord's anointed, there's opposition to the Lord. And now notice he goes on and highlights the stupidity of this voice. It's vain. Verse 2, he says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together, but they do. In verse 1 it says, they, they're devising a vain thing. Now what does vain mean? It means empty. It means foolish. It means stupid. I like the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
In 2 Kings chapter 6, the Arameans are trying to attack the Israelites. And every time the, the king of the Arameans says, okay, we're going to go over here and get the Israelites, God reveals to Elisha what they're going to do. And Elisha tells the king of Israel, oh, hey, by the way, uh, the Arameans are going to try to ambush you over here. And sure enough, the Israelites skirt away from what happened. Isn't it interesting how vain it is that the rulers of this world and the people of this world try to outsmart God and try to stand up and, you know, kind of thumb their nose in the face of the Almighty? Who do they think he is? It's stupid. Then we see the substance of it in verse 3. The essence of their rebellion, essence of our rebellion. I like the way the ESV translates the end of verse 2 because if you read it, it says it's against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So that verse 3 is actually a quote of the rebellious people. And that's what it is. It is a quote. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Hmm. The human heart your human heart, my human heart, at its core, rebels against submission to Almighty God. We don't want him to be in charge. We want to be in charge. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was right when he said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. Ah, fallen human being is actually antithetical and actually has animosity towards Christ and to his Father. Then we see the voice. We have the voice of the rebels, the rebellion. Then we see, we hear the Father's derision. Now, when I heard the word derision, I go, I don't know that word. You know, just think of ridicule. If you deride somebody, you ridicule them, you mock them, you scoff at them. So the ESV actually uses the word derision. The, the New American Standard says that uh, in, in verse 4, he who sits on the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. God's response to our rebellion is laughter. Now, we're going to get to it. Uh, but there, it unfolds in three stages. First of all, his ridicule is described. It's scoffing. It's derision. The, he ridicules the ridiculousness of our rebellion. How silly. How vain. How inappropriate is our rebellion. There was a, a person. I know this story is a true story who stole money from a church. Their plan was this. They found some checks written to the church. They took the checks, and in the, the two, you know, to such and such church, they just put a line through it, and then they wrote their name in the two part and went to the bank and cashed the checks. <laughs> I just went... Oh, yeah, that's a good plan. Nobody's going to figure that out. I mean, they used their own name. They didn't even use an alias. That's God's looking at us in our rebellion, and he goes, get a clue. He laughs. He scoffs. And this, this, he's just like, I can't believe it. The essence of our sin is a rejection 
of his rule and a replacement of his will with our own. And God says, you think you have a better plan for your life. How foolish is that? And he laughs and he mocks at us. It's impossible to escape escape the rule of God in our lives. It's impossible to escape the rule of God in our lives. We can run from him, but we can never hide. Then we see his ridicule displayed. The anointed is the one who rules us, his ridicule. God is not amused. His laughter is not an amused laughter. He's angered. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. His ridicule is defended in verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon my holy mountain. David Kamara, I heard him speak on this passage, and he stated it well. God reacts to the schemes of man by declaring his sovereign plan. What is God's plan in verse 6? Okay, you guys are mocking the Lord and the Lord's anointed. You guys are laughing. You guys are, are standing up and rebelling against him. But guess what? I have placed my king on the throne. He's already there. So deal with it. I have set him in, in, in place. His sovereign, supreme, and spotless son is ruling from heaven. He is in charge, whether I recognize it or not. Nations and rulers, people and princes are deluded into thinking that, that, that we are important and that we're independent. The fact is, we're insignificant and we're impotent. We like to think we're big stuff. But we are the creation, not the creator. We are the clay, not the potter. And we are foolish to think otherwise. Jesus is king. Jesus, you are my king? Maybe. But Jesus, you are king? Absolutely. He is king. He is Lord of all. You know, some denied that Barack Obama was and that Donald Trump is president. But you know, our denial doesn't change the facts. The Roman emperor, Diocletian, in 245, he lived from 245 to 313, was a great enemy of Christianity. And at one point, he had some inscriptions made. He, he proclaimed that he had extinguished Christianity. Okay? How many years ago was that? A long time. 245 to 313. A.D. I'm sorry, A.D. Give me the A.D. part. Uh, so, you know, 1700, uh, 1800 years ago. Guess what? Not. He was wrong. Christianity triumphed over the demise of the Roman Empire. Diocletian's gone. Christianity continues. And Christ is still the king. He's still the king. We heard the voice of rebellion. We hear the Father's voice of derision. And next in the text, in verses 7 through 9, we hear the Son's proclamation. Verse 7, the Son informs us 
of the Father's decree. And three facts reveal that this is the Son who's speaking to us and the content of His decree. First of all, look at His position. It says in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now when you read that, you're kind of going, well, who's speaking here? Well, we should ask, well, who's, who's talking? I will declare. But it's revealed to us in the next phrase. He said to me, who's He? The Lord. God the Father, the Lord, said to me, the Son, you are my Son. Who's his son? My son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 17, in the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. This is a designation that is reserved for the son of God, Jesus. And it's further identified by the use of the word begotten. So it's my son, but that, if that isn't enough, then he says the, the use of the word begotten in the text. And a begot, the begotten is also another thing that is a name, a designation, a nomenclature that refers biblically to the person of Jesus. How do I know that? Well, John chapter 1, verse 14 says... Um, if you read John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Begotten of the Father. And then if you went to verse 18, it says, No one has seen God in any time, but the only begotten of God, He has explained Him, speaking again of Jesus, if you go to verse 1 of John chapter 1, you see that that's who he's talking about. He's begotten. Well, what do you mean? So he was created by God? No. The word begotten has nothing to do with his creation. It has everything to do with his designation as unique, the only one of a kind. That's who Jesus is in relationship to the Father. He's begotten in the sense that he is unique, uniquely God's Son. We're children of God if we're trusting in Jesus, but we are not the same children of God, as His Son, Jesus, who is divine. That's why He was crucified. Remember John chapter 5, verse 18, that He was crucified. Why? Because He said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. That's why He is His only unique Son. And also, this word begotten is picked up in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, in reference to Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 33 on the screen. That God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So begotten in reference to the resurrection. So Jesus is not only his unique, but he's also his resurrected son. That's how he is his son. I ask you this morning, What do you think of the Son? Who is Jesus to you? The Son of God, the Savior of the world. See, every major heresy on the planet gets it wrong about the Son. You'll hear me say that again and again and again, probably. You want to find out what the truth is about some religious system? Find out what they teach about Jesus. If they don't have Jesus 
correct, that he is fully God and fully man, it's a heresy. Now, there may be some other tests and other things, but that's the essence of it. What we do with Jesus is everything. Then we see his possession. If you look at verse 8, it says, Ask of me, this is the Father speaking to the Son, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It's a promise to the Son of the future. He's reigning on the throne, and the text of Scripture tells us that he's currently on the throne, and everything, according to Hebrews 2.8, is under his feet. But if you keep reading in Hebrews, you realize that at the present, we don't see everything subject to him. What am I saying? Jesus is on the throne, reigning as a king. He is the king, but not everybody acknowledges him as the king yet. But someday, he's going to have the full complement of his inheritance in the saints. And what a blessed inheritance it is. You read Ephesians, you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and the prayer of Paul is that they would know what are the riches of the glory of their inheritance in the saints, that they would understand how valuable the saints are to the Son. And the Father says, you're going to have this inheritance. One day, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, one day every knee will bow, verse 8, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. Is he my Lord? Is he your Lord? He is Lord, and that's what he's asking. Ironside is correct. It, will, it is the will of God that his son should have a great heritage out of the heathen world. So what does that mean for us? Folks, this is an evangelistic passage. As those who have received the mercy and the grace of God, the precious and are the precious inheritance of God, it is our responsibility to share with a lost and dying world that they are headed for destruction, but they can be rescued through the Son. They can be redeemed. They can be saved. They can find refuge. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. They need, we need to proclaim the rule of Jesus, the wrath of Jesus, and redemption through Jesus. For those who turn, this is the blessedness. So I ask myself as I read through this passage, who am I personally praying for? And who am I personally, intentionally seeking to share Christ with? you have a name? Ask me who my names are. I can't preach to you and not do it. Now, I'm not very good all the time at praying for them. I'm not all very good at being bold in my witness for them, but there are names. And as I, by God's grace, I'll get to know more and more people. I have more names. But who are they? This is the great call of God on our life. This is what he says. You'll have this inheritance, and by God's grace, he's given you and me a part in building that inheritance. And then there's the punishment, verse 9, the reigning son will pour out his wrath on those who reject him. Folks, we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without balancing the wrath of a holy God against his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Without, without grace and mercy and forgiveness, we, we just have a God who's a, who's a you know, cosmic killjoy, you know, just looking down from heaven and waiting to squish us like bugs. That's not the God I serve. But I also do not serve a God who is just all love and love and love and love and love and there's no wrath and no justice and no righteousness expected. No, but the righteousness is in the Lamb. It's not in me. 
We hear the voice of the rebellious nations. We hear the derision of the Father. We hear the proclamation of the Son. And now we hear the Spirit's invitation in verses 10 and 12. The Spirit speaks through the servant of God. Okay? David is one writing, so this is actually, some would say, the psalmist's voice. Well, it is a psalmist's voice, but the psalmist is only speaking what the Spirit says. So what does the Spirit say? In verses 10 and 12, the Spirit speaks with evangelistic zeal. The invitation to the rebellious for reconciliation comes in four parts. There's contemplation. Now, therefore, verse 10, whenever you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. Okay, that's your little... Hint for the day. Whenever you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. Because it points us back and it points us forward. In light of what I've just told you, the ruling of the Son and the wrath of the Son against the rebellious, now what should we do? He says, contemplate. Therefore, show discernment. Be wise, the ESV says. Take warning. Invitations to consider and act in light of the truth that he is ruling and he will pour out his wrath. I know somebody who went to the doctor, and what did the doctor say? The doctor says, well, woo, your cholesterol is through the roof. You don't get your, you, you need diet, exercise, and this, or your life is going to be cut short. Now, what is that? It's a warning. Now consider, in light of the fact that I've, what I've just told you, act differently. That person, through diet and exercise, dropped their cholesterol like 200 points. It's like, whoa. Major anal compulsive person, uh, you know, was able to do it without meds. Not everybody can do that. But the point is there was a warning, and the warning issued was responded to. The Spirit speaks through David to alert the rebellious of the danger and then gives us the remedy. There's consecration. There was consideration or contemplation and then consecration. What should we do? What would be the result of actually considering that God is in charge? Here's what he says. There's three, three different things that he gives us. Worship and serve the Lord with reverence. Uh, that's kind of the opposite of defiance. If I'm serving the Lord with reverence, I'm not defying him. And then he says this. He says, whoa, we should rejoice with trembling. You, is that kind of... Like, whoa, what's that about? Rejoice with trembling. I thought you rejoiced, you didn't tremble. There is reverential joy. We rejoice in awe of God. And then, I like the ESV, kiss the sun. Ooh, that's getting weird. The Hebrew language is, is very colorful, very metaphorical. It is actually embrace this sun. We, the Middle East, and actually even in Europe, they, you always, if you know somebody, you kiss them. Actually twice. You know? It's not some uh, weird thing. It's, not, it's just like shaking hands for us, okay? High-fiving people or fist bumping them or whatever. It's, it's you know, you, you're just doing that. If you're really, you know, a chest bump for the really, really good friends, you know, uh, but this is, this is the way it is. He says, kiss the sun. These are demonstrations of our devotion, our sincerity. I read this morning, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And I also read in uh, Deuteronomy and, uh, or no, Isaiah. I was reading in Isaiah 56. 
and in Deuteronomy chapter 31, I think it was. And here's the idea. Obedience is not just supposed to be, okay, suck it up and do what God says. My obedience to God is out of reverence and out of devotion. Jesus' quotations of the Old Testament is much more than just Jesus using the sword of the Spirit to slay the enemy. It's about his intimate relationship with the Father and how he would never violate that relationship by going against the Father's will and the Father's words for him. I think that's what's going on here. He says, you have intimacy with the Father. There is worship, there is service, there is rejoicing, and there is a, a relationship with God the Father that's a result of the Son's work in our life. And that's where he goes with the, the causation. The reason for repentance is to avoid the Son's wrath. If you look at verse 11, or verse 12, do homage. And at the end of verse 12, it says, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. There it is, justice, mercy, and, and, and wrath. And then there's a celebration. He ends verse 12 with the same thing that he began chapter 1, Psalm 1, with one, verse 1, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. You want to find refuge from the wrath of the Son, you must go to the Son. The only way to escape the wrath of the Son is in relationship with the Son. Here this morning, you're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it sounds kind of weird. I'm not sure I really know Jesus. I'm not sure I really get all that stuff about you have to put your trust in him and follow him and walk with him and serve him and all that. Okay, that's fine. But here's what, here's what this text, I think, speaks to your heart or is speaking to you. Maybe it doesn't speak to your heart. And that is that for, for unbelievers, there's, you're, you and I are confronted with the reality of and we're challenged by the futility of and we're cautioned by the liability of our rebellion. We do rebel against God. It is a vain thing to rebel against God. And it is a dangerous thing to rebel against God. Is that the path you want to continue on? And I'm here to say you don't have to. Notice how the text ends. What a blessed invitation. How blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. Refuge from His wrath must come through relationship with Him. You turn from your sin and you trust in Him and you are saved from His wrath and in relationship with Him. That's the gospel. And believers, you're here this morning. What does this text say to us? Wow. We can rejoice that the, the God of justice has made a way through His Son, Jesus, so that I can escape the wrath of God and be in a relationship with the one who is in charge and let him, you know, this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, you know, the country western song, Jesus Take the Wheel. Some of you are not country western people. Uh, okay. I hear a few amens, uh, you know. But are we going to let Jesus take the wheel? And if we have, praise God. Now the wheel may be going, uh, you know, you may look like you're going over the cliff, Okay. I get that. I mean, you know, all of us have been there sometimes. And if we haven't been there, we will. You're going over the cliff, but guess what? Jesus, take the wheel. Read, read Psalm 37, you know. He'll not let you fall down because he holds your hand. Actually, I'm going to read it for you. Psalm, uh, Psalm, no, Psalm 37. Psalm 
Psalm 37, uh, yeah, verse 23. The steps of the man are established by the Lord. He delights in his way. He shall not, when he falls, he shall not be cast headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. That's verse 23 and 24. He, when he falls, he will not be cast headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Rejoice. Take up our responsibility to share this blessed joy with those around us. And then rest in the fact that those who don't turn to Christ, they may seem like they're prospering now, but don't rejoice with, I mean, rest in, don't rejoice in, that's what I want to say. Rest in, don't rejoice in the fact that the, the wicked will get their just reward. I rest in it. I don't rejoice in it because the difference between me and somebody from another religious system, I hope and pray, is that I don't want people to burn in hell. I want them to know Jesus because he saved someone like me and he can save them too. And I want them to share and know the things that I have received and blessed by. I don't want to keep it. I don't want to get all I can, can all I get and sit on the can. I want to share it with people. And I pray that we would be those kinds of people, Jesus people, and that we would have God's heart for the lost and we would share the love of Christ with people. I pray it for myself. You pray for me because I'm not as bold as I want to be. And my guess is you aren't either. And I guess we would just work on this together. And here's the deal. So as we come and, and we take the bread and break the bread, it's true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're reminded of it. That's why Jesus' body was broken. The bread symbolizes. That's why his blood was shed. And the cup is a symbol of it. But here's the blessed joy. But as many as received him, do they give you the right to become the children of God? You and I, who are described in verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 2, the nations raging, standing in defiance of God, that's our heart. We can take refuge in the Son and be blessed, be envied. And rejoice if we turn from our sins and trust the Savior. That's true for everyone here this morning. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, accepting his death on the cross as the payment for the sins that you have committed and that you deserve, and that you understand that he now is Lord of your life, even though he may not always be Lord because you don't always submit to him as Lord, he is Lord of your life, then you're welcome to take of these elements and celebrate what God has done for you. And if you don't know Jesus, my caution for you is that you would be challenged by the reality of your sin. You're confronted by it. You'd be challenged by the futility of it, and then you'd be cautioned by the liability of it. There's a price to pay. Let's pray. Father, as we take this bread and this cup, I pray that you would really challenge everyone here who doesn't know Jesus to put their faith or their trust in this one who gave his life so that they could live free I pray that each of us who knows you would not make light of this celebration of your table. We would do this in remembrance of you. With sobriety, we would with rejoice, with trembling, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And can you imagine 
every knee on heaven and on earth, all, every important person, every rich person, every poor person, people of every walks of life on their knee, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. And to think, and this just this thought just hit me, that some of us on our knee at that moment love the thought that this king shed his blood for me. How awesome and amazing that is. And, you know, if you know Jesus, as Steve said, we invite you to join us right now. If you do not know Jesus, bow your heart to him. Give him your life today. Mm-hmm.